Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of CapGen, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions that have been posed to us by our clients and friends in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are Go Anywhere Investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. So, Robert, we find ourselves at two weeks on still talking about banks. Two weeks ago, we spoke here about Silicon Valley Bank, which uh, had um, uh, had gone bust. Uh, we've actually since rather rapidly actually seen that swept up in the UK. The assets of SBB were bought by uh, HSBC. And in the US, we've just had news that First Citizen Bank of Carolina is going to take on the Take on the U.S. business, so so that was a very uh, short order banking crisis. Uh, but just as we got through that, we went into another one, which was the demise, I guess, of uh, Credit Suisse. Not quite a bank failure in the same way as SVB, but very much a shotgun marriage of Credit Suisse being forced by Swiss regulators into the into the open arms of of UBS. So uh, maybe we could start there. So Robert, tell me what. Uh, what happened? Why did we find ourselves in this place? Yeah, so I think it, it's interesting because it's not quite the same thing as Silicon Valley Bank. There are some similar themes. I think the similar theme is this liquidity period of uh, liquidity coming out of markets and interest rates going up is a period when things tighten, when people get a bit more anxious and potentially lose confidence. And so although the problems are not the same, that, that same impulse is is causing these issues to, to sort of rise to the surface. But on the face of it, it is quite different, Credit Suisse, to, to Silicon Valley Bank and, and the other banks that have failed in the US. So uh, Credit Suisse itself, um, I suppose, was it an issue of holding loads of bad assets? Not really. Was it a bank which was suffering from a lack of liquidity and a lack of capital? Again, not really. They, they had quite an ample supply of of um, liquidity and, and capital. So the issue was not really that side, but certainly it was an issue of loss of confidence. And that's the common theme we see rising through the market. So really, the, the loss of confidence or the concern about the banking sector is leading the pressure to focus on the weakest links. So why was Credit Suisse one of the weakest links if it wasn't about capital and liquidity? Really, it was, I suppose, a, a bank that's been badly managed for the last 10 years at least. Um, unfortunately for Credit Suisse, it's had uh, a series of crises points where each time there was a crisis, it was affected. So think Archegos, um, Credit Suisse was obviously had a material loss there, Green Hill. So a number of crises over the last 10, 10 years. And I think one interesting data point really is when you think about the the fines that Credit Suisse has had over the years, fines in many ways are a cost of doing business for large banks. But the amount of money that was lost was 
dramatically more than the amount that was set aside for potential losses. So if we look at the last 10 years, almost 7% of revenues went on um, fines and other other um, uh, losses from, from these events over the last 10 years. So that's a considerable amount of, of money over that, that period of time. So I suppose badly managed in that sense. And the other sense as well was arguably it was 10-year period where the bank uh, talked about restructuring repeatedly. And so unlike at the, the GFC, was quite interesting. Credit Suisse was not really one of the banks, it, although it suffered in the GFC, it didn't actually suffer even as much as UBS. UBS was forced into support from the government. Credit Suisse actually managed to get get its funding from private sources. Um, but the difference was coming out of the, 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 the GFC, yes, in the 2009, 2010, it, it had bumper earnings which paid back the, the losses. Um, but it was the, the the following period where really, unlike um, UBS, which focused more on its wealth management unit, Credit Suisse didn't really have that focus. And there was too many units of the bank, particularly in investment banking, where the assets were not earning, uh, the, the return on capital on those assets was not exceeding the cost of um cost of capital for the bank. So too many unprofitable uh, parts of the bank over that period of time. Um, and despite talking about restructuring, it never really happened. And again, that sort of leads to this 10-year this period, which when we're talking about those, those net revenues, I think over the 10-year period, net revenues of, of more than 230 billion, but about half of that, uh, or o- over 100 billion, 107 billion went on compensation, which is sort of normal. Um, and then another hundred billion or so on admin expenses, but actually, if the the seventeen billion that was left, um, sixteen billion went on taxes, and it, uh, or sixteen point six billion, and and actually, Credit Suisse made a loss net income over that ten year period. So it's a very unprofitable bank for a period of ten years. I think is is the summary. But still, does that mean you're going to um, going to be forced out of business? Not necessarily. Um, but it's it, what was required was that loss of confidence. So clearly, you've had a number of missteps. The share price um, was down about ninety seven percent from from two thousand seven um, going into the the last few months. But even towards the end of last year, there was a loss of depositors, even in in Credit Suisse, that was quite regular. Now, yes, there was plenty of liquidity from uh, support, but even the liquidity support banks have when they have ample liquidity it only provides really 60 days of of protection against this um this falling um depositor base and that was that's the issue when you get into this negative spiral of confidence it was a bank which didn't have um uh much of a um uh protection in terms of equity base it had been mismanaged for 10 years and then it was precipitated by that lack of confidence or lack of ability of their their private shareholders to to backstop and provide capital led to that downward negative spiral um so i suppose it is different in a way but some of the causes are the same and we're seeing that arguably now in in other banks it's not necessarily the same issue at hand um and it's very unlikely it's going to just be about um bad um assets in terms of interest rates going up and government bonds and mortgage bonds have sold off so that gives that um big big gap of capital um, if there is a run on depositors, 
actually that problem is self-solving in a way. If interest rates do fall and we are heading into recession, then actually that solves that problem. Those assets go up in value. What the next stage of difficulty for banks, if if there is going to be further uh, problems, and there certainly does appear to be an issue in the US with the secondary banks, which don't have the the um, guarantee support that the large banks do, um, is it's going to be in bad assets. So if a recession comes and you do lead to some of the bad assets um, on the balance sheet, that it, then those are the assets that fall in value as we enter into recession. I think the prime candidate really is commercial real estate. So that, in particular for the smaller banks in the US, which make a lot of the commercial real estate loans, we're starting to see pressure in that market. And, and that's where you could see um, sort of further banking pressure. But um, I suppose Credit Suisse does not point the, the future for, for other banks within Europe, which, which have quite a lot of capital. But maybe the pressure moves on, as we saw at the end of last week, towards Deutsche Bank, another bank which has had a period of 10 years of, of a loss of um, uh, a very poor equity performance and for, for, for the equity holders. So there's still going to be pressure in banks, but it's perhaps not the, the contagion, that, contagion that we're seeing at the moment, um, albeit there is that risk with, um, with further write-downs or, or write-downs of assets if we do enter into recession. So, so as you as you say, Robert, the uh, the baton pass in in two thousand and eight nine. It was indeed UBS that uh, had to be rescued, having uh, bought too much of what turned out to be the really problematic uh, US uh, 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 real estate debt. Uh, and Credit Suisse emerged, you know, relatively relatively unscathed. And now the you know the shoes on the the other foot. And partly, as you say, because as a result of uh, its near-death experience, UBS was forced into focusing itself on being primarily a, uh, a wealth manager, uh, whereas Credit Suisse, having not had a near-death experience, believed it could hang on to being, you know, at the same time a uh, sort of top-tier investment bank as well as being a top-tier wealth manager. And it turned out those two sort of ended up being in, in competition. But I guess it, it's quite a specific story about Credit Suisse, and it was quite a specific story about Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, and so the question might be, well, you know, are there then uh, uh, consequences for the banking centre in general if these are both specific stories? You know, is there a, a bigger picture trend? And you're saying one of them uh, uh, might be their, their loan books, in particular those that are exposed to uh, commercial real estate. The other thing we noted two weeks ago particularly was how the nature of bank runs has changed. So you made the point that uh, fractional reserve banking is sort of existentially dependent upon confidence and when that goes, it it goes. And what we noticed with particularly Silicon Valley Bank is when it goes, it can go very, very quickly because people can move their deposits uh, at the tap of a a smartphone button. uh, And that has changed the, the, the dynamics. So, so, as you say, banking sector, there's, there is a broader, there are some specific news and there's a broader trend. Things to watch is the quality of their loan books, particularly in commercial real estate. But how have markets responded to all of this? So, you know, a banking failure and a rescue that people might think just uh, saved or, or, or prevented there being a banking, another banking failure of a larger bank. How have markets dealt with all of this? I mean, presumably they they would have been very rattled. 
the question mark is that the uh, central bankers have this dilemma, and it is a bit of a dilemma. It is a bit of a difficult environment. I think where the, the dilemma that's posed is really you've got the the, the inflationary pressures, certainly the, the greatest since the 1970s. So that's a, an enemy for them to battle. At the same time, um, really, you've got this threat of recession. So that's sort of a growth issue. So another another leg to the stool, are we heading into recession? And the third leg is this financial stability. So what do we do about financial stability? And we talked about how the Fed is, is trying to have this separation that they'll use their balance sheet to deal with financial stability and still be able to combat inflation um, with, with interest rates. But it is tricky because it's not even just those uh, combination of issues, the the sort of inflationary pressures of the 70s. You've got the uh, financial stability issues, not as bad as 08, but there are still financial stability issues, falling growth. But you've got asset prices, which even even today are still pretty high in the US when you're looking at the Schiller PE. Outside the dot-com period, really, it's as, it's as expensive as it was in the at the end of the 1920s. So it is a different environment, and we've got to account for um, intangible capital. So there are reasons why that PE multiple should be a bit higher. But actually, if we go into a period of higher inflation, multiples could come down. So you're going with high valuations as well. And the last leg, really, the difficulty is, unlike the 70s, where you had the problem of inflation, but actually debt levels were pretty low. Now we have the debt levels coming out of the Second World War. So there's as high debt levels then. So you, you've got these multiple problems that the um, the uh, central banks and policymakers are trying to confront and investors, which makes it a very difficult dilemma. Now, actually, we're seeing that um, difficult decision break out with different asset markets. So looking at the bond markets, how did they respond? That's where we've seen the dramatic repricing and the focus on this is a financial stability event. We're going to see a slowdown in growth. Credit conditions were tightening anyway. Banks are now going to tighten them further. That's quite deflationary. Um, we're already seeing inflation come down. So the whole interest rate curve is repriced, expecting that really we've seen the last of the interest rate hikes and we're going to see cuts starting immediately. So that's quite recessionary. But at the same time, equity markets um, arguably have been pretty positive and have been actually pricing in the good news of interest rates getting cut is good for your discount factor. It's good for um, when you're, you're discounting future cash flow. So that's good news. But what it's ignoring and, and suggesting is we sort of get through a recession and there's no decline in earnings. Um, so that's where I think Credit and equity markets, equity markets in particular, but also also credit markets, are really being a bit too optimistic that we can thread that needle and and have the benefit of falling rates, but at the same time not have the the damage of to cash flows um, from and, and and future earnings. So there is a bit of a dichotomy between different markets. So it is a very difficult environment for um, central bankers and for policymakers and investors at the moment, because we face a number of different problems. Um, I think most obviously there's this trilemma that um, central banks face from, they face the threat of inflation, which is the, the great biggest inflation threat really since the 70s. But also they're facing a period of declining growth. So there's the, the threat to employment and growth. And the third um, problem is really financial stability, which is uh, we, we've seen in the banking se- se- sector. So they've got those three issues. And so far, as we talked about in the last episode, the Fed is trying this separation theorem that they can use the balance sheet to deal with the issues of financial stability and still be able to hike rates to deal with 
higher inflation. So they're trying to combat those those enemies. But in fact, the position is even more tricky for policymakers and investors than, than that appears. With not only you've got the high inflation of the seventies, financial stability issues not as bad as oh eight, but they're still still there, and you've got a period of recession. But we're also facing a period where valuations start at very high levels. So yes, multiples have come down. But in the US, um, if you look at the Schiller PE, it's as high as it's been since really 1929. So outside the dot-com period, it's as high as it's been. Now, there are reasons why that PE multiple can be higher in a period with higher intangible capital and different uh, accounting treatment of earnings. But even so, if we go into a period of higher inflation, that multiple could come down um, a lot a lot from where it is at the moment. So there is a threat to valuations if we go into that period of higher high inflation. And also, um, unlike the 70s, where you were able to combat higher inflation by hiking rates, having the recession, but you, you could deal with the issue. Um, now we have the debt problem issue, the debt overhang of debt of really the post-Second World War period which makes it very tricky to, to have that period where you can hike rates to deal with inflation because that would be really could lead to a deflationary spiral with the overhang of debt. So it's quite a conundrum, really, for policymakers and, and, uh, and investors. And that's why we're seeing a different reaction from the different markets. So the bond market is really pricing this decline in rates from where we are at the, mo- at the moment. So pricing in the effect of financial stability being quite deflationary, and we're going to see um, a, a sort of decline into recession. At the same time, equity markets are taking all the good news from interest rates falling uh, in the sense that lower interest rates means you're, you can discount your future cash flows at a higher value. So the, the value of equities can go up from, from, from that benefit of, of lower interest rates. But ignoring the fact that what, what the lower rates are coming from is a recessionary period, a period of declining earnings. So the cash flow should be coming down. So really, the equity markets are taking all the good news from falling rates without taking the bad news that actually we're highlighting a period of, of financial instability and um, a tricky period for growth. So I suppose um, if we're considering the, the market's reaction at the moment, both can't be right. So we're going to have to have a, a coming together of, of where we are at the moment. And I think the risk, as we highlighted on the last um, podcast as well, is really actually most scenarios lead lead to really a decline in earnings and really the equity and credit markets being the markets which are mispriced. So, so this, I mean, this is the, the, the distance, isn't it? The sort of the heart of things where you've got central bankers being publicly and arguably reasonably concerned about uh, inflation. Uh, and you see forecasts of GDP growth coming off. And yet, you know, with the exception of the banking sector that's clearly having a tough time, you know, equity markets in 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 the row, particularly in, in the US, seem to be pretty pretty sanguine, don't they? So, so w- where are you on this? I mean, as a as a long term investor uh, with long term objectives and long term goals, which, which side are, which side are we taking? I think firmly, I would say, in, in, in terms of your our most likely scenarios is, is suggesting the bond markets have it more right than the equity and, and credit markets. But in particular, if you sort of take, even if the bond market's wrong, most scenarios and the actions lead to lower values for equities. Equities are pricing in this perfection of, of earnings continuing to rise and having lower rates, which is pretty pretty hard to, to fathom. Because if we, if we work through those scenarios as, as we did before, 
if we are into a recession and the bond market is right, um, then those earnings are going to come down. So the equity markets are not pricing the decline in earnings. Um, if the bond markets are wrong um, and it, there is more inflationary pressure, then the Fed is going to keep tightening rates until something breaks, until we have lower um, growth and until unemployment rises. Again, we'll have a recession in, in that scenario. Um, so again, the equity markets haven't priced that one in right. If actually um, the, the Fed blinks and they cut rates now, um, and actually, the economy isn't as weak as all that. We have a we, we could have this boom period. So that's where equities could be right in the short term. And you see an overheating, um, a boom period like the late '90s in a way. Um, so their equity could be equity markets could be right short term. But actually, that sets up a really bigger decline in equities in the future because the problem of inflation is is not resolved. That that's probably one of the more risky scenarios. Um, and. If, we, if really there is higher inflation and lower growth at the same time, that stagnation, uh, sort of stagflationary environment is pretty bad for equity. So it's hard to see an environment where this perfection that we can see the benefits of cutting rates have a very soft recession and off the races again. Um, even in the scenario where we have that soft recession, a decline of 10 to 20% in equities is a pretty likely scenario. So I suppose the good news is, even if the bond market's wrong, Actually, the equity market's unlikely to be right in, in that in that way, which is how we're protecting portfolios is to have protect against the decline in equities with hedges, um, but use different forms of protection. So we do now have some long duration bonds to protect against um, a, a falling inflation or deflate disinflationary environment and recessionary environment alongside some gold. Um, but also we've got hedge funds to deal with, which which don't each of them have periods where they can't work exactly right. So in the last month, where there's been a lot of interest rate volatility, some hedge fund strategies, in particularly macro and futures trading, suffered a bit in the short term. That's why you can't just rely on them. But in other periods where uh, that we we highlighted, they can provide a very good hedge, like they did last year. So you want these different hedges for the different environments, and alongside, we still maintain. Um, protection against long-term inflationary threat, which I think even with this, uh, we, it is going to be disinflationary or likely to be disinflationary given um, financial instability, the problems in the banking sector, we are going to see tightening credit conditions. So the chance of going to recession is pretty high, but actually the medium-term inflation risks, risks are still there, which is why we've maintained that hedge for the portfolio. So I think the overall positioning with all these bits of protection for different environments is be cautious now. We're not over-egging over the pudding at the moment. You protect portfolios uh, for this time, which does appear quite risky. But actually, the future returns are looking better and better. And if we do see that sell-off, that will be the environment where actually you can uh, increase risk in portfolios. Um, so, so at the moment, for the time being, cautious overall, albeit there are these pockets of value, like value against growth, those spreads still look appealing. We talked about reinsurance or Japanese equities. So there, there are ways we can, can add some pockets of value, but overall positioning, cautious now, so we can take decisive action and take advantage of, of lower prices that are likely um, in, the, in the coming future. Just, just pause a moment on, on equity market investors. And, and um, I mean, there are obviously, as we know, financial theories that uh, assume that uh, there are efficient markets, that is to say, all information is uh, instantaneously priced into securities values. Uh, I think that's um, it's a good theory, but probably has um, some holes in it. 
But tell me, Robert, how putting yourself in the minds of an equity investor when you can see the uh, pressures of indebtedness, you can see that uh, there's a degree of persistence around inflation that we certainly didn't think was going to be there when we were talking about transitory inflation. When you take into account the fact that equity market values, particularly in the US, are already at pretty elevated levels, putting yourself in the mind of an equity investor, how how, how would you go about justifying the valuations that uh, equities are still being priced at? What What is the theory that you've got in your head that makes it okay for, uh, a, again, particularly US equity market indices to be at pretty elevated levels? And th- there's quite a big pause there because it's quite a difficult question. Because in a way, what, what is priced in is we've got low rates. So into the future, inflation comes back to 2%. So we sort of have a 3.5% long-term interest rate from from around 2% uh, uh, inflation and 1.5% nominal uh, real growth. So that's your long-term interest rate, pretty low, and your pricey in earnings to continue to rise from where they are at the moment, which in the US, we have elevated profit margins. And we're already seeing that pressure on profitability. So that's the, what's priced in to get the S&P where it is at the moment. Now, um, so I suppose all the good news priced in... Um, what, why perhaps the market's being a bit over exuberant? I think it's it's the condition of the last 20 years because the uh, investing is really a game of not just what you think the conditions are, what you think everyone else thinks they are, and then uh, you, you end up in this ever-increasing uh, loop of first, second order, third order thinking. Um, but the problem is everybody is looking for a recession and is so conditioned by the dip that this does look, and it probably will be, one of the best dip buying opportunities in the last 10 years. So everybody's super keen, or a lot of investors, super keen to buy and buy early and not miss out. So I think the fear of missing out is still there. There are still signs of over-exuberance in the markets, um, which we see with with the behavior still of uh, Bitcoin and liquidity markets are still uh, performing well. And some of the, um, the unprofitable stocks are having a bit of a second wind in the last, last few weeks. So there's still plenty of froth and liquidity in pockets of the market um, that needs to be worked out, and that risk sentiment needs to be shaken. So we haven't really faced the bottom of the market. So I think that th- those are a couple of the issues. And and I suppose overall, there is a good chance that the recession is more mild than it has been in the past, and the dip is more like, or the rece- uh, the bear market is more like a twenty percent drop rather than the fifty percent drop. And in that case, yes. Uh, markets are overvalued, but they're not excessively overvalued. So I think that's that's the best uh, case argument that you, you know that you can make for that that scenario. And the scenario could be that we we see a lot lot of growth into the future. I think if there's one big change underway that is perhaps in some quarters um, maybe discounted a bit too much. Yes, all those forces are inflationary. There is one big dis- deflationary force out there, and a big change. Um, and a big disruptive change is is AI. There's no doubt about it. It is going to be a big disruptive change for the economy, which we don't, we can't really see all the future consequences of it. So th- we might not enter into that inflation realm. We might enter into a realm of higher productivity. So again, that's that's the perhaps the upside case. And, and with equities, you are buying an option on the future, the positivity um, to a future of, of higher growth. So you could argue that's that's somewhat priced in there. But I think for most long-term investors, actually, when you have this asymmetric um, expectations, it's a good time to be a bit more cautious. There will be better buying opportunities. 
human behavior does go to extremes in both directions. So we're likely to tilt to an extreme where, where things overshoot to the downside. And we are entering to recessionary period and, and it doesn't pay to be too early um, before we've even entered into recession, let alone, we don't want to wait till earnings bottom, but but earnings haven't really declined that much. We haven't entered into recession. So there's still more bad news to come. So I think that's why the balance of probabilities is um, you want to be more defensive at the moment. But that point about the future and, and not knowing the upside is why you don't go 100% to cash at this moment. You do want to maintain some upside. So if you're wrong, and we do enter into that bull case, or in the short term, we have that benign boom scenario where rates are cut and there's actually pretty good growth and we overshoot, um, that could be an environment where you, you you could feel foolish from missing out and then um, have even worse behavior of buying in at even more expensive valuations. So I think that's why a balanced portfolio, which is cautiously positioned with protections in place, is the most prudent way to, to approach, approach these quite tricky markets at the moment. So, so um, uh, it, it might not be as bad as all that. And, and although we think that there is uh, bad news ahead, as you say, Robert, the secret of managing a successful portfolio is not to make uh, overconfident bets. So we have a view, uh, but we also have in place uh, assets that will do well if indeed uh, equity, the more positive equity market investors are right and prices go up for whatever reason that may be including including AI. But another thing we have talked about often here is how uh, it, the, 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 how the human lifespan plays into investing and the fact that the circumstances we've seen the last few years, indeed, even two or three decades might not be the ones that lie ahead of us. And there is this regime change, but it is very hard for uh, individuals to fully encompass uh, what the range of outcomes might be, because they have only, as as we say, their lived experience. And one of the things we do spend a lot of time doing is looking back into the past that predates us to see how assets and markets behaved in different economic circumstances. And I suppose that leads on to say, I just wanted to pick up, you talked a little bit earlier, Robert, about gold. And I feel gold is in some ways the asset from the past. Uh, it goes out of fashion. I recall in the UK context that our Chancellor around the millennium uh, uh, exited the um, um, uh, the UK's gold position at what turned out to be uh, very low prices, whether it was a good decision or a bad decision, there were more things at play. Uh, but I think there was a sense at the time, oh, well, you know, gold is yesterday's asset uh, because, you know, it's been around for a long time and there are more modern things that we can do. Uh, and yet we've seen gold have a pretty good um, period recently. And I think we have been adding to to gold in some of our portfolios. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about gold and physical assets and real assets and how you see their use in the portfolio. What, why is it that we are actually adding to gold at the moment? So I think coming back slightly to that last question is to say, Although there's a balance of outcomes, at the moment, it does seem quite skewed to further downside. So I think it is a time to be cautious and bearish, which is one of the reasons why you, you look to gold. Um, gold is a classic safe haven um, instrument. So in times of crisis, be it inflationary, deflationary crisis, gold is, is an asset um, to look to. So I think safe haven uh, play is what one, one reason. I think another reason linked to that is um, 
is really thinking about uh, the lack of credit risk. So that's one issue if you're buying um, even investment-grade bonds. If we really do enter into a deflationary spiral and we have defaults, you know, you're, you're at risk. You're at risk of defaults of companies, even countries. That's the more extreme case. Whereas gold has no credit risk. So that's another reason people looked at it. I think the big argument at the moment is linked really to um, the lack of other fiat currencies or the debasement of other fiat currencies, really. So we have had a period where the dollar has been in a bull market. And as we've talked about, the next 10, 5, 10 years is likely to be a period of dollar weakness. And arguably, it could be weakness across a lot of currencies. If we do enter into a period where governments with that mixture of problems that we talked about before, you're faced with high inflation, um, low growth, but high debt. If you're going to try and conquer the indebtedness, arguably a, a period of financial repression is is the way that uh, and the answer that um, democratic democratically elected governments are likely to take. So that's where you keep interest rates below inflation for a sustained period of time. So you can control the the, the level of interest rates in the end, um, and that's a way where bondholders really miss out. And um, that environment again, not great for any fiat currency that that's out there. So Assets which have limited supply, gold being a classic example of one of them, you need to have um, supernovas explode to create new gold supply in the world, Although, albeit that's happening the whole time. It's pretty hard to, um, to increase supply on Earth at the moment. Um, so limited supply, if you think fiat currency is going down, if you think dollar is going down, it's a time to add to gold. So I think those are some of the positive reasons. Um, store of value, et cetera, is linked to inflation in the longer term. I think the problem with gold is, is it, it does have um, storage costs, um, and also it doesn't give you a yield. So it gives you a negative yield. It's got costs, but it doesn't give you a positive yield. So compared to bonds, when we have an interest rate now, even 30-year uh, interest rates are still above 3%, so you've got attractive um, yields in a way. If we are entering into that disinflationary period, gold will do well because of falling real rates is a good period for gold. But arguably, bonds may do a bit better. If if uh, it is a period where people flood back to the dollar and there, there's a, um, a sort of period of fear. So gold can have a bid. It can behave like an inflation-linked bond, but it, it does suffer from that um, lack, of a, uh, lack of an interest rate, natural interest rate. So I suppose... This setup, this setup of higher inflation risk, this setup of fears of the banking sector in the short term is one of the reasons we've seen people go to gold and Bitcoin. And arguably some of those, although we're saying dollar a period for dollar weakness, the, the thought that suddenly we have hyperinflation that some commentators have talked about, or we're entering this period where suddenly the dollar loses its safe haven um, status as the global reserve currency is unlikely. Now, yes, we're seeing moves to a bipolar world and uh, current uh, countries trying to pay in other um, currencies for oil. We're certainly seeing that both Chinese currencies, but even some of the African currencies are being used now um, to settle those, those, um, uh, those debts, those, uh, those contracts. So we, it is going to be a period of weaker dollar, but not suddenly a collapse of the dollar. So I think that's where maybe the safe haven play gets over overbought a bit. So yes, we do like gold. And there's a chance in this period, uh, we do have that sort of risk period and gold can explode up to record highs. But equally, I think we should caution, 
if we enter into a disinflationary liquidity crisis, um, the examples being like 08 or even 2020 in the middle of COVID, there was that week before the government stepped in where everything sold off. Long duration bonds um, can can uh, perform a bit better, but actually you wanted cash Gold was selling off in that period of time. So there are examples of periods where real liquidity crisis, gold can be liquidated, but also it's not, it doesn't behave uh, quite the way you, you'd, you'd want. So I think um, it's not the only answer. It is a useful answer. But longer term, a period of higher inflation, you really want real productive assets. Um, so gold isn't the only answer there. And in a short-term liquidity crisis, you still want um the US dollar, cash positions, and hedges, um, a more explosive protection in that real um, liquidity crisis um, event. Robert, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. And uh, if you enjoyed today's discussion, please do subscribe to the podcast.